is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. I have for you today a food allergy mom who has taken her experience and made a good deal of change with it, Gina Minette Lee, who is the founder of Minette Lee Food Allergy Consulting and guest number bajillion, it seems like at this point. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited to talk to you. You have done so many things since you discovered that your daughter was food allergic. Thanks so much for having me. I'm just wondering if I get a prize because I'm the bajillionth guest. Total prize. Yeah. (laughs) Here's an EpiPen that you hopefully never have to use. Thank you. Um, So your daughter, Jillian, has food allergies. You were feeding her cereal when she was eight months old and she got all hivy and squatchy. Do I have the story right? I was eating cereal. You were eating cereal. Yeah. And she, I was nursing her and, and I, now hindsight, probably some milk dripped on her or something. I don't really know, but I looked down at her and she was covered head to toe in hives. And, um, my first thought was, oh, must be peanuts because that's really all I had heard about. And my father had eaten, happened to eat, had eaten peanut butter, like right before and he was kind of playing with her and I thought, oh, he must have like gave her a kiss and that must have been what it was. But she tested positive for milk and egg right away at, at eight months. But it was a trip to the it was a trip to the hospital with that. Yeah. And they didn't really do what we would hope. Right. They sent you home with advice to go see an allergist. Right. And um, yeah, it, I grew up on Cape Cod, so my I was at my parents' house. It was Labor Day weekend. And so we cut that little vacation time short, made an appointment. Luckily, right in my town, we had a very, you know, prominent allergist and I was able to get in, I think like that Monday or Tuesday. So there weren't that many days between like the diagnosis, the official diagnosis and that event. But yeah, it was very stressful. No, you know, I was not given an EpiPen at the ER she was given Benadryl and I was just told go home. So. Yeah. Looking back when my, um, you know, so my kids don't have food allergies now, but my older one did. And the same thing had happened to him. He broke out in hives. I didn't even take him. I just gave him Benadryl and then eventually called the allergist when it was convenient a few days later. Right. So it's, it's crazy what you don't know. Yeah, right. Know. And you don't know what to look for. How did you feel when all of that happened? Um, well, obviously, you know, I was, I had a little bit of experience because I was a teacher and I did have a couple of children here and there with different allergies, like a bee sting allergy, a nut allergy. I had like seen an EpiPen before at least. So I had a little bit of knowledge, but basically I just felt, you know, in over my head, uh, um, yeah. no resources, no one to talk to, uh, no information. And honestly, at that time, because she's, she'll, she will be 17 in December, you know, you didn't even have the online forums. So, you know, I had to get a subscription to a newsletter that was, it was at that time it was called fan, not fair. Yeah. And I think like the first lifeline I had was going to a, um, a conference, which was happened to be in New York. So it wasn't too much of a drive for me. And so I went to a um, fan conference and, that I was like, oh, hallelujah, there's like information, but there really was not much out there. So, you know, I felt on my own pretty much. 
Yeah. I think that's actually still not too uncommon, right? When, when food allergy parents are diagnosed now, you know, obviously there's a lot more information available, but I don't know that finding it is any more obvious to someone getting diagnosed now than before, if that makes any sense. It's almost like too much information. It's hard to weed through that information and to be able to identify what is the valid information. So yeah. So many armchair doctors out there, right? And so many doctors who aren't even food allergy specialists. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to um, take a look at at what's out there. And I can't imagine having a fresh diagnosis, what you would decide, you know, who to listen to. I, I have these like social media discussions, you know, every so often it comes up again about how really at the point of diagnosis, we're not doing a good job Mm. and um, how there really needs to be a team in place for patients, you know, someone, a mental health person, you know, maybe a nurse educator, someone that can handle the school aspect of it. Not just, you know, this is your child's diagnosed with this allergy. Here's an action plan. Here's an EpiPen. See you later. Because um, there's just so much more that comes up and, I actually just was on Twitter discussing this, um, that the, after the initial shock wears off, because you're first in shock and it's scary, you know, that you get this EpiPen and that you might have to use it and trying to figure out when to use it. You don't even know what questions to ask at that initial appointment. So I feel like there needs to be like a quick follow-up appointment a couple of weeks later, checking in. There just needs to be more um, time, FaceTime between people that are educated and I'm hope I, you would hope it would be like at the allergist office with a team of people in the patients to be able to talk back and forth and really get the correct information. Yeah, no, I think that that's a that's a great idea. So, you were a teacher before mm-hmm. uh, you you shifted into all of this kind of food allergy work, right? What has what really led you to kind of shift into this support and and advocacy work around food allergies? I mean, obviously the fact that your daughter had them, but I mean, there's a lot of food allergy parents who never take that leap into kind of changing their career work. It was, uh, you know, a lot of things that happened all at once. I, I had my husband's job had moved from like Indiana to Connecticut and my daughter, it was right at the time that Jillian was born and she had had these allergies right away. And she also had some um, issues. She had, she has asthma as well. And she had been hospitalized a couple of times and I just didn't make um, my way back into education. I felt like I needed to be home with her because she needed me. And then, uh, she had a, like a near fatal reaction when she was two and a half at home with me. Um, and it happened so quickly that, you know, my, after we got home from the hospital, I kid you not, my immediate thought was my gosh, she's going to be in school in two and a half years. And if me as a teacher, if I had been in the classroom with what I know, and with the current policies that are in place, I don't think it would have been the outcome. I don't, I don't think it would have been the positive outcome because they didn't have the training in place. They didn't have the immediate access to the epinephrine. And I said, I gotta, I've got to do something. So, um, you know, for myself, for my daughter, for other children, I, you know, I started a support group met a couple of other women who were willing to kind of go on this ride with me to do some policy um, development to start advocating on the local level. And then that led me to 
you know, started a nonprofit. Uh, and then from there, I found that, you know, being the spokesperson for the nonprofit started to actually get in the way of me being able to communicate everything I wanted to communicate. Um, so I wanted the freedom to be able to just speak freely for myself, not, not as the spokesperson for the nonprofit. So that's what kind of drove me to then do individual consulting work. Yeah, that makes sense. So you started out doing consulting work really with parents, right? Or did that start um, with the schools? Parents and then like on the side, like uh, because I developed relationships with principals and board of ed through, through, through these other advocacy work, they had, they would call on me, Hey, I've got this issue going on. Can you help us out? But it was more, um, issue based, like one particular issue. And then with the parents, it was more how to navigate the school system. Um, you know, it, it can be very tricky and you want to, you want to start off on the right foot. You know, I'd rather be brought into the process early so we can help establish a good relationship rather than being brought in later when the bridges have been burned and then there's a lot more legwork that needs to be done. Um, and that's where I find there's some, maybe not the best advice on social media about how to handle things. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of going into meetings and it was a lot of, at that point, trying to repair some relationships that, between the schools and the, and the families and, and educating the schools along the way. Now it's more global work, like I'm being brought into, hey, can you take a look at our policies and let us know, you know if, there, if there are things that are missing or what, what would you recommend for training? Uh, you know, it's more global overriding work, which, you know, I think is excellent because I feel like the schools are finally kind of coming on board and seeing the value in that and understanding that they really need to, to account for, you know, these children. What are the types of policies that you look for, or advocate for when schools come to you asking for that advice? Well, I always go back to the CDC guidelines. I think they're very well written. They're the gold standard. So that's what I look for. I look to make sure, are you meeting the CDC guidelines? Are you meeting these priorities? And what does that look like for people? Well, who it's, you know, making sure that you're one, identifying children with food allergies and those that may require, you know, an individual plan. It's coming up with an individualized plan for each child. You know, it's making sure that you have the proper training in place uh, for preventing a reaction, but then also responding to a reaction. And then like creating, you know, an environment that is conducive to learning and inclusive for all the children. So as a parent, what would you, let's say there's a parent who doesn't necessarily have access to you or someone like you, what are the questions they should be asking as they're looking at putting their kids into a particular school? Um, are you thinking preschool or are you think at any school? I mean, I think I would- Pick your favorite. <laughs> yeah. First, I would just do a little research online, see if they have food allergy policy available online. If they don't, I would ask that directly. Like, you know, do you have food allergy policy in place? You know, what what are your policies? Um, who is trained within your school system? Ideally, that everyone, everyone in that building is trained. 
um, who, who is responsible for responding, you know, if, if a reaction were to occur. Sometimes you still have schools that maybe have one individual that's responsible. Mm -hmm. You know, that to me, that's a little bit of a red flag. You know, you can't rely on one person to do that. Um, well, and Lord knows how far away that person is, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and then other things like, uh, you know, how, uh, do you have food in the classroom? How do you handle food in the classroom? How do you handle lunchrooms? Um, you know, it's looking at a typical day and thinking about, I think food allergy parents were really pretty good at, at identifying risks because that's what you do. Like the whole first, you know, five years of their lives is go around trying to identify risks and mitigate those. So it's just kind of having that discussion. Do you think schools are generally as responsive as you would want them to be? Or is there generally kind of some fight that needs? I realize I'm painting with a very broad brush there. Yeah, but. I know. It's, um, I'll say that there's been progress. I mean, when I started, we were at a really different point where I think there was maybe not even awareness of children with food allergies. Yeah. Or people maybe knew oh yeah, there's peanut allergies. Like it was just a very narrow understanding of what allergies were. Um, I feel like there's a broader understanding of what they are now. Um, but I still think, and again, I come, because I was a teacher, because I you know, did my internship as a principal, I, I understand also they are inundated with, with things that they're dealing with. I mean, and now add you know, COVID to that. Yeah, there's seriously. so much on their plate that we're, you know they're not just there to develop food allergy policy so you know it's our jobs hopefully as parents you know to not only be advocating but for our children but to like serve as a resource and be helpful that's that's always been like my approach and it's been helpful for me to have that approach because they felt open enough to come to me if they didn't understand something or if something was off, it'd come to me and ask me about it. And I did try to keep everything very fact-based. Um, I think sometimes uh, to try to get across the point of how dangerous something is, um, people might like, for instance, someone might say, it's like bringing a loaded gun into school, you know, like having a nut. And I'm like, well, it's a touchy thing to say, you know, I come from Connecticut where there were school shootings. So I'm like that people don't understand that. Although if there's a risk, you know, with there's a risk with that, it's not the same as when you have a nut in there, there's things you can do. You can wash hands, you can wash a table, you can use an epinephrine. So it's very important to just like state things as they are yeah. um, and be, and be factual because I think you lose people when you go too much hyperbole understand it they don't they don't get it yeah what uh where do you stand on like nut free or peanut free tables and or schools i heard you ask that in one of the other podcasts so it's one of my favorite topics i just i'm curious from from your particular position of helping schools you know where where do you and and your daughter has other allergies outside of that she does she does so she never sat at a peanut you know free table i i from the beginning, I always said that was kind of like an antiquated approach. Um, again, I always go back to that there should be an individual plan for each child. Each child is going to be so different and their needs yeah. and allergies that they have are going to be different. Um, their emotional needs around it are going to be different as well as their physical needs. So I'm not saying that there may not be a table where you keep it free of 
X allergens, like maybe that's the best plan for a specific child. But I think just having a one size fits all approach is not, it's, that doesn't solve the issue. Again, it goes back to let's identify these children. Let's get an individual plan for their safety and inclusion. And that really is what should be driving what happens in the school setting. Yeah. I've never, I mean, you've heard me on other podcasts say it, you know, I've never been a fan of the fill in the blank allergen free zone. It's almost always nuts. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't account for the other kids or for the other allergens that that kid might have or those kids. Right. And it just, it, it frustrates me as a, I think it provides a false sense of security. Oh, we take food allergies very seriously. Look at our peanut free table. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> that kind of tells me you don't On take the it seriously. That, I do think it's like very important to have allergy-free spaces and food-free yeah. spaces because I just think that children shouldn't have to be thinking about food like when they're in the classroom, for example. So yeah, I, I don't want to like muddy the waters with saying that it, you know, attempting to have like an allergy-free space is not worth it in that no. sense. No, I um, no, I I agree with you. I I, I just mean that 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 peanut free or that yeah. nut free, like it just is so yeah. <laughs> peanut and nut focused. Like there's, yeah. is what, right? It just kind of feeds the myths, right? I, I yeah. totally agree with you that having, you know, classroom parties without food, like there's lots of other activities that you can right. do that don't include food, right? Right. Like yeah, let's I, not do science experiments around food. Exactly. I feel like the, maybe the peanut free tables, you know, came in vogue, maybe like, 10, 15 years ago when they yeah. were starting to crop up and then they said, oh, okay, let's do this. And then they can cross off the policy. That's exactly right. We're done. Yeah, I think, you know, you need to revisit it. I think you, and I always would say, I and do always say this to schools, it has to, you have to create policy as it addresses your specific community. You may have like no children with a nut allergy. Like I hope in the future with all of this early introduction that we don't see the nut allergies. And so the predominant allergies could be the ones that are predominant now, the egg and the milk in the younger mm-hmm. kids. Those may be the the allergies that we're seeing, you know, in high school. And so you really need to, uh, it needs to address each community. And I think policy really needs to be written broadly to be flexible in that way you know creating safe spaces for children with allergies instead of saying creating this x space you know there's ways to state policy that allows for that flexibility yeah of all of the policy changes that you've advocated for thus far what's kind of the change that you've been most successful at that makes you feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside what's your proud moment from a food allergy perspective I think the two would be um, one getting everyone trained because I know that that's that's gonna save a life. You know, I won't know when or where, but it it will. There will eventually be a time when there is a child that has a reaction and they're gonna respond quickly and appropriately, and that's gonna make a difference. Um, so that would be the number one. And then they've probably already done that, and you haven't even heard that. You know, like. That's probably already happened. Yeah, I, you know, that's kind of the thing that makes me keep going is knowing, you know, this is, you know, we were able to do that in these different districts. And, and I, I'm like, if, if that helps save a kid or 
or even just help them, you know, not to have as, as bad of a reaction, then, you know, we, I can, you know, die happy. It's, it's been worth it. Cause it, it is a, anybody that's in the food algae community, you know, how much of a struggle, a drain it can be. Um, True. The second policy is like quality of life for the kids. I think when, when I can convince the schools that you don't need to be bringing in this food all the time and that we can make these spaces safe for everyone, that makes a huge difference on how the kids are able to interact with their peers and function and um, be, you know, in, yeah, with be their included. community. Yeah, so I think those are the two that I feel you know, most proud of. Yeah, I love it. Let's shift over and talk about Jillian a little bit. You mentioned she's 17 now. Uh, what a scary number. Yes. Yikes. Ah. Yeah. Kind of scary age from a food allergy perspective. Right. So what have you done from a parenting and working with her side to, to ensure that you feel comfortable with her being out with her friends and, you know, being at school and going to friends' houses and thinking about now I'm sure heading off to college. Yeah. I mean, it's always, it's always a process. I think from the beginning, I've always tried to stay in the moment because it can be really overwhelming if you know I sometimes I'll work with a client and their child will be entering kindergarten and they'll be worried about college and I'll be like okay let's just take it (laughs) one step at a time because like you're going to be different your kids are going to be different and and the skill levels are going to be different so I try not to be too far in the future but I do always try to be forward thinking with what kind of skills can I um, help her to develop so that she can be an independent person and not be, you know, defined by her allergies and not um, have her allergies impede any of her life goals that she has. So uh, she started self-carrying around second or third grade. That oh, was wow. a moment for her. And um, that, that was one of the things modeling you know, at restaurants, how to talk to people, even modeling how to train, you know, friends. She's now at the point where now, you know, she's doing that. Although restaurants are still very tricky and not something that we do a lot. I think it's modeling those behaviors and then giving them the reign to do some of those things. I, I had some great relationships in the middle school with the guidance counselors and teachers where know there was a big trip where she went to Washington DC and I wanted her to be a part of that meeting or uh, I would give a heads up and I say I give this as a tip for parents I give a heads up to the teacher that you know I'm trying to help my son or daughter advocate for him or herself I'm gonna have her come in and talk to you about this specific issue that they're having just so, and I just want to cultivate that and, and encourage them to be speaking up because this is what we, you know, need to do together. So I did do that quite a bit, and she learned to speak up. Uh, and then even speaking up about things that are not allergy related. I think learning, like if something comes up with the coach, uh, you know, being able to talk to the coach about it with the with the sport. All of that is like flexing those advocacy skills that they learn to speak up for themselves and to articulate and to communicate but I'm totally nervous about her as (laughs) going going to be 17 I mean dating is so stressful Mm -hmm. uh, she is allergic to milk egg sesame peanut tree nut shellfish I have to 
now trust that a boy, you know, like that's that age is going to be, you know, mature enough to understand the, you know, ramifications of eating that or something if they want to kiss my daughter. So, I mean, this, that's what we're navigating right now. She, she's not dating right now, but it's like right around the corner. (laughs) It's a good filter for ones that are worth keeping and ones that are not. Yeah. I mean, that's how I say that from experience. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, that's, you know, right. But it's, I find that very daunting and, And I'm trying to figure out the best way to help her navigate that. So that's kind of my next hurdle. And then I think also, you know, trying to find the ra- the best match for her for college. She wants to play lacrosse in college. So right now we're in the thick of it because junior year is a big recruiting year. So I'm trying to not make that the focal point of her choosing a college. Like I don't want it just to be on solely on food policy because I don't want her to be restricted, but it's a, it's an aspect of it. I don't know if this is common, but where I went to school, the athletes had a separate dining hall. Oh, really? Yeah. Which I would think would probably be a positive, right? If you're always eating your meals over there, yeah. Then, you know, it's a smaller environment and, yeah. you know, kind of the same chefs and, and line yeah. staff. And My all older that. daughter is in college right now and she does play lacrosse in college and uh, they don't have a separate area, but um, that would be awesome, I think. Yeah. Send her to Vanderbilt. That's a great school. Wow, that's excellent school. Well, and they have a McGugan Center, which is where all the athletes eat. Let me tell you that the food is better over there. Sorry, the rest of Vanderbilt. <laughs> but I, ju- I would think that that would make it more comforting, right? Yeah, not to be in kind of a smaller Yeah, she's place. also looking at smaller schools. And so I'm hoping that that smaller environment as a whole will be a, b- a better match. But we'll see how it goes. But I think as parents, you're always looking to that next step. How can I help her get there? Because I, I don't want her relying on me. She doesn't want to rely on me either. And she's a very self-sufficient person. So I just want to do the best. That, I think as a parent, the best that I can do is to help her develop skills for her to, to you know, be on her own and to, to do her own thing, just like you would if they didn't have, you know, food allergies. Yeah. So you were brought in as an expert witness in a lawsuit, probably more than one, but one that we found. How does yeah. that process go and how does that feel and and I mean, that's got to be pretty daunting. Um, well, luckily, like that first one, which is the one that you were um, talking to, the lawyer was very good at like bringing me along, uh, knowing that, you know, I had never done that before at the time. Um, yeah, there was a preschool that wasn't, it seemed as though they did not provide accommodations for this child and the parents decided to, you know, pursue that legally and I think it's the parent that actually found me at the at that point I was one of the few people in in the country even like doing preschool um, professional development and talking about policy development so that's how they identified me Um, it was a lot of talking about the case Um, again it's very I always stay true to like who who I am it's not about fitting the narrative to what the case is but it's about going in there and talking about what is best practice what is what is necessary to keep the the child safe and then it involved you know writing a report and end up being settled after the my report was um submitted they ended up settling out of out of uh 
court. So I didn't go to the deposition phase or the um, or being on trial on the stand. Oh, I was going to ask you if it felt like being on TV. Yeah, I think a lot of them. What I'm finding, um, because I've been involved with other ones, is that's kind of the way that it goes. They hope, hopefully, you get a good expert witness that has this information. They know what they're going to be testifying to, and hopefully, you can settle out of out of court. Yeah, right on. Well, so in that in that vein of expert witness, any tips or advice, uh, things that we haven't already mentioned, either for parents or schools, kind of best practices or quick things that they can do to, uh, you know, make the environment better. I mean, I think for for schools, the number one thing is what I keep going back to, which is identifying those children and coming up with an individual plan. If you're not doing that, then then you're not doing what you're required to do. Um, and then that individual plan and what that looks like and what policy looks like is going to differ depending on what your individual school community is like. Um, for parents, again, it's like directing um, your questions to the proper people, making sure that you're you know, communicating things in writing and that you're, you know, trying to develop and foster a relationship with the school and asking for what your child needs. Love it. How can people connect with you and the consulting firm online? Uh, you can go to my website, which is foodallergyconsulting.com. Um, I'm also, I, I'm not on a lot of social media channels, but I'm most often on Twitter, which is at Lee LLC. And then I'm on Instagram at Food Allergy Consulting. Perfect. So then last up, but certainly not least, is my favorite little game of fun, which would be two truths and a lie. So you're going to give us three facts about yourself, one of which is not so much a fact, no particular order, and don't tell us what the answer is. Okay. I love this. I love this. Okay. So my first one is that um, I was part of my school choir, and I'm still in an adult choir and I calculated that I've sung the national anthem over a hundred times. It's a lot of anthems. Yes. And then my second one, as I told you earlier, I grew up on Cape Cod and I was asked to provide entertainment for kids at the Kennedy compound during Ted Kennedy's Senate run. Nice. So I spent time at the Kennedy compound. And then my third one was that I was a softball pitcher and had uh, seven career no hitters. All detailed enough that they could be true or false, and I like it. I had to write them down just so I <laughs> give it away. <laughs> Gina, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm sure everyone listening has learned something today, and that is what is important, uh, bringing that food allergy awareness to everybody that we can. So thank you for all that you're doing. Thanks for being here. And listeners, as always, this has been the Shandyland Podcast, and thanks for hanging out, sticking around, and we'll talk to you soon.